Hey everyone, welcome to the 360 Experience. I'm your host, Tim Brahim, and I'm very excited about today's episode on a super important topic, which is the topic of meditation and in particular mindfulness. Noah Levine is a, uh, an expert on the subject matter. He's been a meditator for over 25 years and is a teacher, a retreat host, uh, and is, uh, is somebody who I've gotten to know quite well. He's also a, a best-selling author. He's written four books, actually, um, Heart of the Revolution, Against the Stream, Dharma Punks, and Refuge Recovery. I'll tell my story with Noah uh, and my my first interactions with him when we get into the conversation, because I want him to hear it as well. Um, Noah is a, a wonderful teacher, a very heart-centered man, somebody who brings a tremendous amount of wisdom to to anybody that uh, is interested in the subject matter of meditation. Um, and his focus is, is in particular in how to utilize meditation for the purposes of breaking addictions. And the reality of it is, is so many of us have addictions in our lives. So without further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation with Noah Levine. No, it's good to see you, man. How are you? Good to see you too, Tim. Pretty well. Yeah, pretty well. Dude, thank you. Good. Thank you for for all that you've done for me that you may or may not be aware of. You know, like I um I'm really grateful. I'm at a stage in my life now where I reflect back on the teachers and benefactors that I've had. And um, you're you're way up there on the list, man, of 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 people that have made an impact on my life. And I'm I'm so honored to have you on the show and to uh, to just chat and just uh, to learn from you and to have this audience that's listening be able to glean some some wisdom from not just the teachings of the Buddha, but the subject matter of meditation. It's such an important topic, I think, in today's world and with all the craziness and, you know, the distractions and the intensity and, boy, really being able to have a grip on our mind and our attachments is, uh, and, and to try to curb suffering is so important. So I think we should just start by, like, you just sharing a little bit about yourself. I mean, I love, if I can, before you do, I love to tell the story to people when your name comes up about like, you are the greatest head fake of my lifetime thus far. Meaning that like I signed up for this workshop at Esalen for, for five days to, to, to study mindfulness and meditation with this guy and saw your picture, but it was like a black and white photo. And then I saw you in the, in the, the dining hall before the retreat started and I saw you from a distance and I was thinking to myself, that's, that's that guy, Noah. And like, wow, man, he doesn't look like a meditation teacher. Like, I mean, <laughs> like this guy looks like he, he could just, you know, he's somebody you want to steer clear of. And then for the next five days, man, I got to feel your heart. I got to, to, to learn from you. And I was just like, wow, I mean, this guy is really a beautiful human being that I feel really blessed to have, have met. And, um, so for those of you watching, you, this isn't probably your prototypical mindfulness teacher, but let me just prepare you as we get started. This man has been on a journey, uh, in this lifetime and is, and it has a lot to offer. So tell us a little bit about your journey, if you wouldn't mind. <clears throat> You know, it's a, a, a big question. I mean, I think in some ways right now, what I, how I'd frame it is, um, you know, my journey has been one of, you know, the suffering in my early life that led to addiction, that led to uh, meditation and a path of recovery. I um, last week celebrated 34 years of sobriety, of recovery. And, you know, what happened 34 years ago was I was sitting in jail 
I was strung out. I'd been in jail over and over. Um, I was looking at my third felony arrest and I was looking at a life of, you know, dying young and, and or, you know, being in prison and long-term prison. And, um, and my father, I grew up with, you know, my father is Stephen Levine and he's this wonderful meditation teacher and wrote books with Ram Dass. And I grew up around Ram Dass and Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Korn, uh, Joseph Goldstein. And, and, you know, so I, I grew up around these, you know, amazing teachers, spiritual folks. And, uh, and I totally rebelled against it and had my own trauma from my early life that their meditation um, practice didn't resolve for me. And at, you know, 1988 at 17 years old, sitting in, in jail, my dad said, well, um, why don't you try some meditation? And I tried it. Mindfulness, simple present time awareness of the sensations of, of my own breath and ignore my mind and come back to the breath. And, and I had an experience of um, there's hope here. I was very hopeless. I was very uh, suicidal. I was very, you know, um, angry and, and confused. And I started meditating and, you know, and I got sober and I did 12 steps, although I really struggled with the 12 step stuff. It was just way too, was and is way too theistic for me, you know, way too sort of, there's this external kind of, magical force that's going to remove your cravings and your you know if you pray and i just like mm, that doesn't make sense to me but meditation was a practical tool and so i took to it and i did it while i was locked up and then after i got out i started going to meditation retreats and and i established abstinence and and recovery and 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 spent all of these years practicing Buddhism because it was the non-theistic spiritual approach to existence that made sense to me. But I didn't connect much with the Buddhists. They were my dad's friends, you know? There was none of my people, my culture in the room. It was, you know, I was meditating with the old hippies, baby boomer, you know? Uh, and, you know, I was the tattooed punk rocker on the retreat. And um, and in recovery and 12-step rooms, I found my people. I found the other addicts, you know, like me in recovery, doing a spiritual practice on, on you know, some way or another. And I spent a long time with these sort of two disparate, you know, my culture is over here in the punk scene and in the recovery rooms but my path is over here on the buddhist the middle path um you know even like when we met in teaching at places like esalen where it's like oh yeah here that's not the you know not many guys that look like me teaching at esalen <laughs> uh but you know really fortunately about you know 10 years into my own sincere practice and recovery and you know my teachers my father and my other teachers started encouraging me to teach and this is in my late 20s cuz i started when i was 17 and i did you know dozens of retreats and you know my own sincere deep dive into my healing into forgiveness into developing compassion 
And then about a decade into it, I was encouraged to, to become a, a meditation teacher. Um, I mean, I could go on, but I mean, the conversation, you know, so I, I sort of frame my journey as this recovery journey at this point and this, this life of healing. And a huge part of my own healing has been being of service, sharing what has worked directly in my life with others, which led to creating Dharma punks as a book and a community and against the stream as meditation center um and 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 you know community and now for the last decade really focused on uh what we call refuge recovery which is a buddhist based approach to recovering from addiction rather than translating the the 12 step judeo christian theistic perspective of actually bringing this buddhist non-theistic perspective to healing and recovering. Yeah, I want to get into in a little bit what Buddhism really is and the teachings of the Buddha, because I think that most people don't realize that Buddhism is more a philosophy than it is a religious faith. And and I think that's important to, to you know, create that distinction and to dive into that. But I want to touch on something because I want to make sure that we grab this audience right away by the collar and be like, all right, listen up. Um, you don't have to be in recovery, quote unquote, from alcohol or drugs or anything like that to have addictions, because <laughs> I think that all of us do. We have addictions to work. We have addictions to sex, eating, technology, you know, um, all kinds of things. And meditation, as you defined it, is a technology, a practical tool to work with the subject matter of addiction and therefore the subject matter of suffering, I would I would imagine is is probably accurate to say. So let's let's break that down a little bit more. Let talk about what meditation is, its practical uses and benefits and how it can be used by all of us as a tool to help us have more harmony and peace in our life. Happy to. I want to address your statement around um, addictions and and that maybe you know maybe everyone has them. Um, my own sense is that not everyone has addiction. Uh, I'll give you my sort of current working definition of addiction, and then people can say, oh, do they see themselves in that? Uh, whether it's work or food or sex or money or power, you know, like. So the way that I'm defining it for refuge recovery is. Addiction is the repetitive process of habitually satisfying cravings to avoid, change, or control the seemingly unbearable conditions of the present moment. Wow. We can all look at ourselves and be like, how often am I habitually satisfying this, this reactivity, these cravings to avoid change or control what seems unbearable, like I can't tolerate life as it is, and I need to do something to change it, to control it, to avoid it. Then the second piece, and I think this is really important for addiction, this process of craving and indulgence provides short-term relief, but causes long-term harm. It is almost always a source of suffering for both the addict and those who care about the addict. Because, you know, coming from a, a history of addiction, uh, and mine happens to be substance abuse, but our community is full of recovering addicts from process addictions. Not everybody 
um, yeah, there are healthy things. Like some people like to say, oh, well, are you addicted to meditating now? Are you addicted to exercising? Are you addicted to, you know, eating healthy food? <laughs> you know, like, and I just don't think it's fair to say like those healthy habitual commitments. I don't think we should classify them as addiction. Only if they're causing harm to us or others, is it an addiction from the perspective that I'm looking at. Got it. Got so it. certainly our relationship to work can cause harm to ourselves and others, and we can use it as an avoidance and a, a compulsive. Um, but, you know, a lot of people are not addicted to anything they still have. And this is where Buddhism comes in. And maybe it's the second part of your question. You know, Buddhism normalizes the human condition and it says everyone is experiencing some suffering in their life. Everyone. Nobody has an existence. Nobody that's unenlightened has an existence that's free from suffering. The cause of our human suffering, unhappiness, stress, uneasiness is a repetitive experience of craving for sense pleasures. So everyone has craving for sense pleasures, but not everyone becomes addicted to the pleasure producing behaviors or substances, right? We all want life to feel good all of the time. And some of us go to the point where we're drinking ourselves into alcoholism or we're using drugs into addiction or work or sex or money or food becomes not just a normal craving for pleasure, but a dependence and a, a an avoidance and a addiction. What about like, like I would, I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I've recognized what I consider to be an addiction, but I want to run it through your definition to see if, if in fact it holds true. And the addiction is to, and I see a lot of my clients that, that have this experience as well. It's the addiction to staying busy. Um, not being able to sit still in the present moment. I remember <clears throat> uh, an old girlfriend of mine was over with another couple and we were in the kitchen and I watched myself literally rearranging things on the kitchen counter and not engaging in conversation with the three of them. And I, I was the witnessing presence of this activity and I was like, holy shit, like, what am I doing here? Like, what? Like, turn and face them, connect why and and that's when I started really examining this continual, habitual um, need to stay active and engaged in something, and to the detriment of connection. So, <clears throat> I think there are a lot of people that fall into that category. Does that fit your definition of an addiction? I think you have to look at, and you can, you know, right now in real time, reflect on uh, what harm is that causing yourself or the people around you. You know, um, because on some level, it sounds like just some anxiousness and um, that, yes, it's on some level helping us avoid some vulnerability, some connection, maybe some intimacy. And that there's a, a level of um, it's not the healthiest behavior, but I'm not sure that I would classify it as an addiction. And I've also seen you sit in a, you know, in mostly in silence for on retreat. So you actually can do it. 
Oh, for sure, I can do it. But that's that actually gets us to the that actually perfectly tees up the second part of my question, right? Yeah. So, so like I, just for the listeners' benefit, like in addition to doing a five day workshop with Noah at Esalen in Big Sur, where we meditated several times a day for an hour or so per per time, I actually did a four day silent retreat, um, which was easily one of the most impactful. Uh, personal development experiences in my life was sitting in silence for four days and we meditated for, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 hours a day for four straight days. No talking, no eye contact, no reading, no writing, no nothing, just presence. And boy, did I learn a lot about myself. And I've always kind of, and I want to lob this back to you now and have you speak to the benefits of meditation and how it can help with any type of addiction and in other areas of our life. But the metaphor that I always try to share with with my clients is, you know, think of meditation, your meditation practice as no different than your your workout practice, right? So it's like if you have a muscle that is atrophied, the muscle of presence through the experiences of trauma and other Un, un, unpleasant experiences earlier in your life that have caused you to, to wall up and guard and be on high alert and be operating under the hormones of stress and those types of things. Your meditation practice is a continual practice to have you settle into the present moment and to experience what is there. And sometimes it's not comfortable what's there, but let's, let's go there. Let's talk about meditation and, yeah. and, and why it's so powerful. <clears throat> You know, my sense of meditation is that um, everyone needs it. It's not about, you know, like I have this story of addiction and recovery, but it's not, uh, you know, the Buddha's teachings are for all living beings, not just, you know, we happen to be applying it in our community for addiction. But uh, my my sense and, you know, in alignment with the, the Buddha's teachings is that um, the untrained mind is untrustworthy. And uh, a life that's unexamined with without a meditative awareness is destined for unnecessary unhappiness, unnecessary suffering. But that with meditation, which, um, you know, there's lots, you know, this term meditation means a lot of different things to a lot of people, right? So there's a lot of different forms of meditation. From a Buddhist perspective, from an early, you know, what the Buddha taught, early Buddhist perspective, there's two main forms and and two main benefits or or several benefits from meditation, but there's mindfulness. The seventh factor of the Buddha's eightfold path is mindfulness. Mindfulness has four levels, four foundations. Mindfulness is defined as present time, non-judgmental awareness. So in even that, like all of us kind of like, yeah, how often am I present? Like you were saying, how often am I here and feeling what's here, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, being with my mind, my emotions? Mindfulness is a, you know, it's become this sort of buzzword and it's on Time Magazine, (laughs) but it's really radical to actually be fully present because it's unnatural. The mind's natural tendency is to be in the future and in the past. The Buddha referred to this, you know this, Tim, as the monkey mind. The untrained, without mindfulness, without 
efforts to be mindful. The, mon the monkey mind swings to the future, planning, hoping, uh, worrying, swings to the past, reminiscing, resenting, <laughs> you know, to be here, as, as Ramda said, to be here now, you know, as Eckhart is saying, the power of now, right? This is 2,600 years ago, the Buddha is saying, now, present time awareness. And the point of present time awareness is to wake up to three things. Everything is impermanent, number one. The truth of the, the undisputable nature of our human experience of reality is transience, is impermanence. Now, we all know that, right? Everybody listening is like, yeah, yeah, common sense. Of course, everything's impermanent. But without meditation, we go around forgetting that, denying it, doing a whole bunch of, you know, sort of maladaptive behaviors that aren't in harmony with the truth of impermanence. Getting attached. All forms of attachment lead to suffering because whatever we're clinging to, attached to, are impermanent things. And then, you know, without meditation, you forget that everything's impermanent. You cling and you're like, why am I so stressed about this changing how, how, how does thing? Sorry, how does meditation help you understand that everything is impermanent? Present time awareness. You pay attention. First foundation, you pay attention to your body. Here, now. Pay attention to your breath, to the sensations in your body. What do you see? Arising and passing of sensation. The breath comes, the breath goes. Second foundation of mindfulness, you pay attention to not only the impermanent nature of the sensory you know, perception, but also what's your perception of the what we call feeling tone? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant or neutral? The sounds that you're hearing, are they pleasant or unpleasant? The breath, is it pleasant or unpleasant? This, you know, your ass on the meditation cushion, how's that feel? Pleasant or unpleasant? So by paying close attention, investigating what's happening moment to moment, you wake up to it's all impermanent. Nothing is constant. Nothing is unchanging. Through direct, we call it insight, you know, through, through introspection. And then you turn towards your mind and you watch your thoughts and you see like everything that arises in my mind passes. Every, and then you look at the world and, you know, with, with that perspective, and you're like, everything is constantly changing. And mindfulness reveals that in a way that's not just an intellectual understanding, but is a knowing through deep, long-term investigation of it. So we have that, you know, which helps us break the delusion of this is going to last forever. But we all have that. The mind produces this thought of like, this is going to last forever. If it's painful, sometimes the mind says, this is never going to go away. But the mind is wrong. It goes away. Or if it's what, you know, you're falling in love. You're having some success. You're having some pleasant experience. And the mind, and you, you know, there's that clinging of like, this is going to last forever. Or I hope it lasts forever. And then, you know, where is it? five years later, 10 years later, arising and passing, impermanent. So mindfulness reveals 
the truth of impermanence. Because it reveals the truth of impermanence, it also helps us see that anything we're trying to gain lasting satisfaction or anything we're trying to rely on or reliability is um, impossible. There's no satisfaction in sense pleasures. There, you know, the craving is too repetitive. The impermanence is too uh, prevalent. So we have to constantly satisfy our, 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 you know, desire for pleasure over and over. It's not like, you know, that, that amazing experience we had last week does us any satisfaction this week. It's gone. The other big piece that mindfulness reveals is the impersonal nature. The more we meditate and we turn towards, we watch our mind, we feel our emotions, our sensations, we're here in the experience. We see it's all arising and passing and I'm taking it all, especially my thoughts my, and the, the, the emotional and, and psychological process of what we're aware of. We take it so personally. When fear arises in the mind, there's the feeling of I'm afraid. When anger, when when love, I, there's this self-centeredness of the human condition. And mindfulness starts to reveal, this isn't that personal. This is just the human condition. All humans love pleasure, hate pain, you know, cop resentments when people hurt us, you have lust, have, you know, Buddhism normalizes the whole thing, you know, as a, as you were saying, as a philosophy. And then meditation helps you verify the truth that it's not your fault, that you're a self-centered, craving, <laughs> aversive human being. Everyone's like that. But meditation becomes an intervention. Everyone's like that on one level or another, but it's miserable to be a self-centered, fear-based, taking every, you know, taking everything personal all of the time. And mindfulness starts to, meditation starts to open to like, oh, a lot of what arises in my mind is not wisdom. Is fear-based, self-centered, you know, anxiety. And then we can start to just realize, you know, like you're, that example that you were using of seeing yourself rearranging things on the counter. Mindfulness, you know, bringing mindfulness into that moment being like, oh, this is just like, I'm I'm nervous. I'm trying to avoid just relaxing into some vulnerable connection with these people that I actually care about. And it's not my fault. That's just how my mind, you know, sort of has this avoidant tendency because it's a little uncomfortable to have this quiet, intimate, you know, connection with people. And I'm a little, you know, insecure about how I'm going to show up. Or, and it's just the mind. So mindfulness reveals like it's not your fault. It's not that personal. But we have the ability to choose, oh, okay, my mind's sort of saying, hey, avoid, rearrange. I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna obey my mind. I'm actually gonna stop, breathe, feel my body, feel my emotions, and and feel, like I said, that second level, I'm gonna be willing to feel unpleasant. It's a little unpleasant to just stop and be not active. And I'm gonna tolerate that. I'm going to have compassion for like, oh, this is a little 
uncomfortable and I'm going to be in the discomfort rather than trying to avoid it. So much of what we learn in meditation, I mean, I can, you know, I'm going on and on, but part of sitting meditation that's so important that you don't quite get from like a walking meditation or a yoga practice, sitting still and tending to the discomfort of your crossed legs on the cushion and your back starting to ache after 20 minutes or 30 minutes and and being able to just be with oh this is unpleasant can i and there's a instinctual drive to meet unpleasantness with avoidance but what if i just soften into it what if i just accept this unpleasant experience as it is and try to meet it with compassion try to meet it with mercy with friendliness does that dissolve it over not time? Not necessarily. So then what's the point of not avoiding it? Like, wouldn't it be more comfortable to avoid it? But that's the piece of um, meditation. There's so much in life that's unavoidable. Mm-hmm. If we could avoid all of the unpleasantness all of the time, we wouldn't have any problems. But as we all know, it's impossible to avoid all of the unpleasantness all of the time, which makes it necessary to get good at being uncomfortable. Well, hello, friends, and I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the 360 Experience podcast. To listen to the remainder of this episode, please visit us at The Loan Atlas, where you will also find the most comprehensive resource for mortgage professionals to build their practice, backed by the greatest faculty that's ever been assembled in the mortgage industry. Check us out at the link below or go to theloanatlas.com. Look forward to having you as a guest on our next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast.